Welcome to Elevate, the masterclass where we dissect the elements of exceptional achievement and lifestyle design with a focus on personal growth and real estate investing. Now, here's your host, Tyler Chesser. Elevate Nation, welcome back. This is Tyler Chesser. I'm so thankful to have you here. And I'm blessed and grateful because you are in for a massive, massive treat today because I'm sitting with Stephen Kotler, the man, the myth, the legend, the expert on peak performance. And my goodness, this is going to be an amazing discussion. I'm so pumped for this. And I know that this is going to bring you a ton of value. So I want to encourage you to buckle up, buckle in, you know, get your notebook ready, get your iPhone note app ready, because there's going to be some bombs dropped in this episode, I already know. And I can't wait to dive in here. But I'm blessed and grateful to have you here. Are you ready to take it to another level? I want to welcome you back to the show where we sit down for mind-expanding conversations with influential authorities in real estate as well as top experts in other industries and disciplines. And of course, today, we're talking to a top expert in the peak performance realm and really, you know, a worldwide, a globally known authority in this space. And this is for leaders, entrepreneurs, and real estate investors who have a burning desire for the extraordinary. It is our mission to identify and apply how the best of the best raise the bar personally and professionally to achieve greatness in real estate and beyond. And of course, what we're talking about today can be applied to real estate, it can be applied to your business, it can be applied to your leadership approach, it can be applied to sports, it can be applied to, you know, things to, you know, things that you enjoy doing outside of business, right? Peak performance, and we all are hardwired for peak performance. And we're going to be diving into that today, which I'm so excited to do. We will distill the mindset, the habits, routines, the systems, the tools, the strategies, and so much more from Stephen Kotler so that you can be a peak performer yourself, so that you can bring out the best that you have within yourself. And, you know, at the end of the day, this is all about elevating to life without limits, because if you can step up your performance, everything is available to you. And not only is it really fun, it's amazing to be the highest performer, you know, that you can, but it's also your destiny, right? It's something that, you know, you should tap into, you should, you know, really max out as, as, as a guy like Ed Milet says, max out your capacity, max out your life. This is a masterclass for leaders and those looking to achieve uncommon results and purposeful outcomes through personal growth, through personal mastery, through real estate investing as a vehicle, other ventures as a vehicle, and most importantly, and ultimately in their lives. If you are enjoying Elevate, we just ask that you give us a very, very quick subscribe. Subscribe to the show because we're coming out with amazing, amazing content, mind expansion, as well as future expansion is what we're all about. We want to elevate not only your consciousness, we want to elevate your finances, we want to elevate your cash flow, we want to elevate all of these things. So if you're enjoying this, just subscribe to the show and share this with a friend, pay it forward you know, by either sharing this on social media, send this to one person, that's the fee that we ask, is that you just share with one person, of course, you can overpay that fee by paying it forward to more people at once. So go ahead and do that. If you've already done that one time, thank you. Uh, We just ask that you do that once again, this is 100% for free. And also give us a rating and review. If you have, um, you know, 30 seconds, give us a five star rating in a review, it really helps us. But also, it's something that I'm extremely grateful for. And I also want to know, like, what is your feedback? Because I read every single review. And I'm extremely grateful for every single one of those. Uh, Don't forget to check out Elevate podcast community on Facebook, go deeper with the tribe, expand your conversations, expand your learning, expand your growth. 
by engaging in that tribe. So just go look us up, Elevate Podcast Community. Of course, you can also link to that uh, in elevatepod.com, which is our website. We've got all the resources, tons and tons of resources, show notes, transcripts. I mean, you name it from this podcast across the board. Just go to elevatepod.com. And of course, I want to encourage you to go check out Elevate High Performance Coaching Academy because look, what we're going to be talking about today is all about peak performance. And that's what we're all about in Elevate High Performance Coaching Academy. We want you to be the best that you can be, whether you are a real estate investor, whether you're a leader in your business, whether you're a salesperson, you know, whether you're somebody who's thinking, you know what, maybe there's some side hustles here. Maybe there's some pivots that I can make in my career. You know, we want to have the opportunity to pour into you. And we want you to really maximize your capacity, not only elevate your mindset, not only elevate your strategies, your systems, your time management, all of these things. We want you to be an elite performer. And so we invite you to go check out elevatecoachingacademy.com. And uh, there's a free masterclass, a free workshop right there where you can literally learn how to make the five shifts to becoming a higher performer. And if you would like to know, We'll also let you know what the eight-week program looks like and all those details there at the end. But of course, you'll get all the value before you get there. So make sure you go check that out, elevatecoachingacademy.com. And with that said, let's dive in because today is going to be epic. I'm just telling you right now, Stephen Kotler is here and he is a New York Times bestselling author multiple times. Let me just tell you, he is an award-winning journalist and the executive director of the Flow Research Collective. He is one of the world's leading experts on human performance. He is the author of nine bestsellers out of 13 books total, including The Art of Impossible, which is his most recent work, The Future is Faster Than You Think, Stealing Fire, The Rise of Superman, Bold, and Abundance. His work has been nominated for two Pulitzer Prizes, translated into over 40 languages and appeared in over 100 publications, including the New York Times Magazine, Wired, Atlantic Monthly, Time, and the Harvard Business Review. Stephen is the co-host of the Flow Research Collective Radio, a top 10 iTunes science podcast, which is so awesome. I definitely highly recommend you go check out their podcast, the Flow Research Collective Radio. Of course, check out his books as well because they are epic. Let me tell you, you want to talk about somebody who's a multiple New York Times bestseller, bestseller in so many other capacities as well. You've got to check this guy's workout if you haven't already. Along with his wife, author Joy Nicholson, he is the co-founder of the Rancho de Chihuahua, a hospice and special needs dog sanctuary, which I love. Uh, because look, man, I, I'm a dog guy. And I think most of us are in some way, right? So I love Steven's love for animals and his obsession with peak performance and human performance and becoming Superman, superhuman in so many different ways. So I invite you to really, really enjoy this amazing conversation with the great Steven Kotler. Steven, welcome to the show, sir. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm fantastic. And I know that uh, I think you're a little bit better than good. I'm just having to guess here because you got some amazing news today. You want to share it's that? A good, it's a good day. You can share it. I'll, 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 I mean, I'll you got the sweep. It. We didn't even know the sweep. We were just talking about this before. We didn't even know the sweep existed on all the bestsellers list for the new book, Art of Impossible, The Art of Impossible. So how does that feel, man? How does it feel? I'm still a little like it's the first time I've ever swept every bestseller that's there. You know what I mean? Like that's a that's the thing. I don't think it's quite uh, landed yet. Um, I like. I mean, what I what I'm excited about more than it, when I'll get really excited 
the book is about teaching people how to level up their game. So it's cool that it went everywhere, right? That's awesome. Once I start hearing, like that's what happened with Boulder, Abundance Horizon, Superman, like people would, I think there are a couple thousand businesses that got started because of Boulder, Abundance. So when you start hearing that stuff come back and you're like, oh crap, it actually like impacted real change in the real world. That's like, I think that's really when it starts sinking in. Um, this is great and it's awesome. And it just means, you know, the ideas are going to get out there. But once they, when people start applying them and it actually starts producing results, then I think it'll fully land what happened, you know? Yeah. And it's just a barometer. I mean, it shows that obviously the early adopters are really passing that along and there's obviously a ton of value. So I just, I just honor that. And I appreciate that. And want to acknowledge the value that you bring to the world, but man, I'm excited about this conversation because you're all about elevating your game. You're all about elevating others' game as well, not only through research and just the expertise that you've gained over the years, but also through science and recognizing that, hey, we've got a biology here that can be our ally or it can be our enemy. And so I really want to dive into that. But before we do that, you know, tell tell the listeners more about yourself kind of behind the bio, behind the public image, behind all the bestsellers and all the sweeps and all these things. I mean, who is Stephen Kotler as a man behind all that? Wow, I I have no idea. Uh, that, that I don't know what I don't know how to answer that question at all. Can we make it a little more specific that as a man? Well, um, if you would buy pedal, there you uh, go. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know the reason why I like to ask it pretty generally like that is because you know, like who who are you? I mean, what are you all about? I, you know? Yeah, I'm an I'm literally I, I and a certain level, I, I am exactly as the bio says. I'm an author. I'm a journalist. Uh, I'm the executive director of the Flair Research Collective, where we studied the neurobiology of peak human performance. I run an animal sanctuary. I'm a lifelong environmental advocate and animal geek. My wife and I run an animal sanctuary uh, as well, and I do a lot of work on that stuff. And uh, when I'm not doing any of those things, I'm usually hurling myself down mountains at high speeds, which <laughs> I think is in the bio too, because um, we try to tell the truth. Yeah, I love that. And I love that you're, um, you know, a passion, you know, passionate about dogs in particular. And I know that you're also passionate about evolution. One thing I thought was really fascinating about uh, when I read Sapiens, which you may have read yourself, and I know you've been a student of evolution and through your work, but it's interesting how dogs have evolved with humans as well. Is there any, have you thought about yeah, that? At all? Well, I wrote a whole book about the relationship between humans and animals and yep. really spent a long time. Like a, it was, it's just called the small furry prayer. It was one of the books that uh, got nominated for a Pulitzer that I wrote. Um, so uh, yeah, I, I've really spent a long time uh, thinking about evolution predominantly in the context of ethology, which is the study of animal behavior. Um, when I was started out as a journalist, um, I, most of my focus was on either neuroscience or on action adventure sports. That stuff is well known. What, is also less well known is when I wasn't doing those things, I was going extraordinarily far out of my way to try to hang out with scientists who were hanging out with animals. And like I would spend a year planning a trip so I could go spend two months in Madagascar working with Patricia Wright, who's MacArthur Genius Award-winning primatologist studying lemurs in the rainforest. Or I'd go to Ecuador and study monkeys and that sort of stuff. I, I did a tremendous, and I will tell you by the way, toughest people on the planet are field biologists. Like you wanna know like, is it Navy SEALs? Is it action adventure sport athletes? Who is it? It's field biologists without, like without even a question. Why is yeah. that? Because the conditions they're going into to study and the animals they're trying to study and the difficulties they're encountering 
I mean, the list of, you know, Patricia Wright, who was one of the woman I was just mentioning, she did her doctoral dissertation in the Amazon in Peru, where there are like 300,000 things that can kill you and all of them come out at night. And she went down to study the aotis, the night monkey. It literally will travel like 16 miles through the canopy at night. And so she had to, tra- and she, by the way, had a baby daughter at the time on her hip and no husband. She's alone. She's in a rainforest with 300,000 things that can kill her. She's trying to track a monkey that's moving 16 miles a night through this rainforest. That's what I mean. Like it's a, it's a level of like danger and toughness and everything is trying to kill you all the time. And there's no training. Like you're trained, you're a scientist, you're trained to do research. You're not trained like a Navy SEAL is trained to be tough or an action adventure sport athlete learns to be tough. You're literally, it's not even, you know, Patricia Wright was a sociologist in Harlem before she became a primatologist. It's so fascinating. And it's just, it's just interesting because you would never think that that, you know, I guess when you really describe it in that capacity, of course, it's dangerous, right? It makes sense. But one thing that I really admire about you, and this is something that I share, and I know that many peak performers do as well, is just that level of curiosity and really trying to understand that perspective and gain that perspective and then become an expert and dive into that and talk about all, you know, talking about the flow, which is a lot of the stuff that we'll talk about today. But I'd be curious if you were to really kind of take it from a high level. I mean, what fascinates you about peak performance? Like, why did you dedicate much of your life work towards that? The first time I encountered individuals who were accomplishing so-called impossible feats, stuff that had never been done and we believed was never going to be done, which has been essentially what I spent my career studying, was in action sports. And which, you know, I said, I started, I became a journalist in the early 1990s and action sports back then were like rowdy, irreverent, punk rock subculture. It was really hard for journalists to get anywhere near these communities. Um, And uh, as a general, the athletes involved tried to kill the journalists. They were like famous for actually doing this kind of crap. Um, Most of the journalists I know who covered action sports in the 90s, myself included, got PTSD on multiple occasions along the way. Like it was not, it was not for the faint of heart. But uh, (laughs) the craziest thing about it was when it wasn't just that they were doing things that had never been done before. And we really didn't believe we're going to be possible for the species. And that the salt, you're right. They talk about the nineties as the great era of impossible because it was so many of these feats, right. And they weren't just being done. They were being iterated upon. It was like this form of extreme innovation that was insane, but it was these athletes. It wasn't like anybody you'd expect to do this. These athletes, everybody I knew came from broken homes and horrific childhoods They had very little money. They had almost no education. There was a lot of risk taking. There was a lot of drug abuse and drinking. Normally you put these things together in a community, you get jail, you get death, right? Right. Bad stuff happens. What you don't get is reinventing what is possible for our species over and over and over again. So the size of the magic trick that I first encountered, besides the, it's one thing, like seeing this stuff up close in, in activities that you've spent your, I've been skiing my entire life by the time I was first, you know, in Chamonix. I was like 25 years old the first time I was in Chamonix with professional extreme athletes at the time. I thought I was an expert skier. I had ski bummed after college. I like, I thought I knew what the hell. And when you see professional athletes for the first time up close in person, it looks like a magic trick. 
Like they do stuff that you're like, it doesn't actually make it like it defies the laws of physics. It's not so it's gravity. And that was happening all the time in those days. So that itself was, you know, head exploding coupled to the other things I was writing on, right, which was psychology and neuroscience and evolution, you know, and ethology behavior. This stuff taught me that wait a minute, this high risk, crazy, insane community, they're not supposed to be driving innovation forward and, and like what the hell is going on. So the size of the original mystery was so captivating to me. I don't think I ever got over it. And when you, you know, didn't, and I took the question into other domains and to science and to technology and to business and to, you know, everywhere and ask this question, what does it take to do the impossible? The answers were always the same. Whenever the impossible becomes possible, we see a bunch of stuff, but we also see a state of consciousness known to researchers as flow. So that was core to the mystery. And I wrote six of my books have sort of been about that subject. The other thing that shows up is people kind of extending human capability with flow and people harnessing disruptive technology and using that. That's the other half of the equation. When the impossible becomes possible, right? Act, those active sport athletes were doing amazing things and they're doing with flow and other things we could talk about. But all of these whiz-bang aerospace materials that had sort of been developed in the 60s and 70s started creeping into surfing because the board shapers were in Southern California where the aerospace guys were. So they all knew each other. And the, it was just engineers talking to engineers about how do you design wings? That's a surfboard, right? So high-tech supercomputer stuff started leaking into action sports. And by the time people, you know, the 90s rolled around, it had the new materials were there. There was all kinds of, you know, technological stuff that was also allowing this to happen. People rarely talk about this side of the action uh, adventure sports coin, but put those two things together, you tend to get the impossible. And this is true everywhere I've looked as well, right? Whether it's people taking an on impossible global challenges, the subject of my book, Abundance, where it was small teams of people going after energy shortages or water scarcity or poverty or right like stuff huge governments used to do now we had individuals succeeding against these kinds of challenges you saw flow and people learning to extend human capability and you also saw them harnessing disruptive technology right if you're solving energy scarcity in africa you're using solar to do it right it's an accelerating disruptive technology so that's a lot of what i've done and i've you know written six or seven books about technology so that's essentially my career and the shit that's driven me forward, but it was the size of the puzzle. You know what I mean? Like the mystery, I'm a curious guy by nature, right? Um, in general, I've been curious my whole life. Journalism is a career where you get to exploit your curiosity. So I got paid to exploit my curiosity. And so I was, I'd been cultivating this for a long period of time. And then I encountered a mystery that was so goddamn big. You know what I mean? I was like, okay, this, I wanna know how this works. <laughs> Hey guys, just a quick word from our sponsor and we'll be right back to the show. This episode of Elevate is brought to you by CF Capital and you know how much I love real estate and how it can be a vehicle towards creating any outcome that you want in your life, which is really why we created CF Capital, it's a real estate investment firm that focuses on acquiring and operating multifamily assets that provide stable cash flow, capital appreciation, and a margin of safety for our investors, for our partners, and for the people that we serve. Our team leverages its expertise in acquisitions and management to provide investors like you with superior risk-adjusted returns while placing a premium on preserving capital. 
Our mission is to provide property investment and asset management solutions to help investors maximize their returns by investing in high value multifamily communities. Our philosophy is that we can elevate communities together through this process. And I wanna invite you to go check out cfcapllc.com because we have a free ebook that's called The Bottom Line, The 10 Ways to Increase Cash Flow in an Apartment Complex. And I wanna tell you that this is a value packed ebook. So I wanna to, want to invite you to go check that out right now at cfcapllc.com. I think you're gonna get a ton of value just from reading this, whether you apply it to your own business or whether you educate yourself further on what it would look like if you invested with CF Capital. So go check that out at cfcapllc.com. Again, that's cfcapllc.com and enjoy the rest of the show. Yeah, and I just want to dive deep and just go into every rabbit hole and see where it takes me, right? And you didn't know like at that time where it was going to take you in terms of all I of see, your work. You know, it's interesting. What I knew back then, everybody else had come into this problem through psychology. And I knew, still my opinion, but I knew, or I was pretty <laughs> sure of, that it was the wrong tool for the job. We needed neurobiology. As far as I could tell, as much as I knew about psychology when you translate it into how do you train it, it's always metaphor, right? When psychologists, when you say mindset, you mean attitude towards life. When psychologists say mindset, they actually mean attitude towards learning, but they don't even mean that. What they mean is specific regions of the brain are getting active that facilitate learning, and other ones are staying quiet that also facilitate learning. And when learning is blocked, we see this inverted. So all the freaking metaphor about tuning your mindset, blah, 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 that doesn't matter when you have an actual mechanism. No, what you really need is to activate these structures in the brain, produce these neurochemical effects, tilt brain waves this way, and we know how to do that at a mechanistic level, and we can teach people that. That was, and I came in, I was reporting on both, but I came in hungry for the neuroscience because I thought it was, the, it was a cooler puzzle, and it was also neuroscience for whatever reason, neuroscientists, especially in the 90s, were also interested in some of these grand philosophical questions. How does consciousness work? What is the nature of reality? And, you know, I spent a lot of time studying philosophy along the way. So these questions were very real to me. And psychology, especially then, was, it was asking different questions, right? It was probing things that weren't as interesting to me. So neuroscience was a really great fit. And it turned out, you know, once you took training down to neurobiological levels, we could take things, I'll give you flow is a great example. So flow is optimal performance. It jacks everything up. We can talk about why and how and what gets elevated. But let's just say it's the entire, everything you could possibly imagine gets elevated by flow. And we, the state's been studied since the 1870s. The core trees, this is on the psychology of flow, were written down, you know, first in 1975. The, the best-selling book came out in 1990. We've got 30 years of people trying to use the psychology to train it, and the hit rate was terrible. And you could read about it. Like uh, Susan Jackson and Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, sort of two of the godfathers of flow psychology. Mihai Csikszentmihalyi is really the godfather, and Susan one of his grad students. But they wrote a book called Flow in Sports about all the early efforts to try to train athletes using flow psychology and like everywhere in the book, bad mixed results. By taking things down to the neurobiology, my organization, the Flow Research Collective, we train about a thousand people a month and it's from members of the US Special Forces and pro athletes through like a lot of Fortune 100 CEOs and C-suite executives to like yoga moms from Indiana and insurance brokers from Iowa, right? We train everybody and 
on average, we see a 70% boost in flow. And we use the exact, we use Susan Jackson's scale that she developed to measure flow. We're using the exact same scale she developed and couldn't get results. And we're getting a 70% boost in flow reliably, repeatedly over time. That's what, it's not our voodoo. I mean, our voodoo is good, but (laughs) it's that biology scales. It works for everybody. And the psychology is squishy. And it's personality, culture, a lot of stuff kind of mess with our ability to kind of translate the the psychology into something that's going to work for everyone, right? Which is what you're looking for, right? A tool that if I can't, unless I can tell you this tool works for you, I'm just lying to you. If I'm sure you know what I mean. Absolutely. Well, and that's, that's why I wanted to start with evolution as we kind of began this conversation, because that's, you know, from what I understand about your work, I mean, to a large degree, obviously you're looking at, you're saying biology scales and neurobiology Uh, is the way it's happened to flow. And it's from the evolution standpoint where you really kind of discovered that, right? It was, I, um, I was, I think extremely lucky. So when I got into journalism, I, um, I, so new journalism was the style of journalism I was, I was trying to be. This was the style of writing development, like Hunter Thompson and Joan Diddy and a bunch of people. And it's really about uh, how do you represent truth? And journalists got this feeling that like, not because the media distorts the message, but because you have to make choices when you write a story. You include these facts, you exclude those things, right? And you're telling a story. And then your editor comes along and says, no, 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 that's not important. This is important. Then the publisher comes along and says, no, 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 our readers care more about this. And everybody's making choices and it's really hard. What's the truth and all that? Nobody's lying, but you're making, you're cutting out large chunks of stuff. And new journalism, we're like, well, okay. So what we're going to do is we're going to show you so much of our personality, right? This is what Hunter was doing. He's not just showing you that he's crazy and willing to do all these drugs. He's showing you who he is a fierce, rabid, freedom of speech, liberal blah, who has these values. So you know exactly where he's coming from. So even though cuts and edits are being made out of sight, you can trust the reporting more. That was what new journalism was. It's sort of, a, it, it, it's a way of trying to get at the truth more. I thought it was, you know, science is another way of trying to get at the truth, but I, this was an early way that I really was devoted to that. And I have been reading a guy named David Quammen, who is a brilliant writer on biology and evolution, right? And wrote my single favorite book of all time, which is The Song of the Dodo. He was on staff at Outside Magazine where I was, I was doing some work. And I, John McPhee had done new journalism for geology. David Quammen started to do it for biology and evolutionary theory. And I was like, I want to do this for neuroscience and psychology. So that was my whole project. But because the guy I was trying to emulate was a huge evolution geek and I was reading everything he wrote ever, um, I learned you know, a ton about evolution. Coupled to, I was hanging out with all these animal ethologists, primatologists, whatever. They're all, you can't do that work without being thoroughly grounded in evolution. And I will say, I'm glad you brought it up on the fact that I've often said this, and I don't know if it's true. I can't measure it. I haven't looked at it. There's no data here. But in my experience running around the world, most of the smartest people I know always look at information. They have two filters. On top of whatever other expertise they're bringing into the situation, they understand systems thinking and they understand evolution. And evolution is a system, right? But they understand principles of systems thinking in general, and they understand evolution. And 
I learned systems thinking from trying to do like rainforest works as a giant big system. So I, I learned, oh, systems ecology, this is how systems work and evolution. Oh, here's, here's how nature works at a deeper level. And that kind of scale thinking, it's not, forget even what the topic is, thinking this way about evolution and about systems ecology teaches you to think at scale and at, you know, using systems. And since everything we deal with in business, in life, right, these are all systems, it's a huge advantage. It's a huge, huge advantage having that framework. Um, it's interesting that you started there. Most people yeah. skip over that. In fact, I will tell you, tangentially, you did say you just wanted to have a conversation. So I'm just <laughs> going wherever the hell I want. Um, <laughs> That's right. One of the things I will tell you as, as a guy who's written 12, 13 books now, um, you learn about readers' sensitivities. Two things readers hate, unless they're reading books about them, are history and evolution. People love books on history and they love books on evolution, but if you're writing a science book, which I've written 13 of or 12, 11 of, 10 of, where people get pissed, where I get like letters to the editor kind of stuff is, <laughs> why did we need two chapters on evolution? I mean, who fucking cares about evolution? Wow. And, they say, and they tend to say the same thing about why did we need the entire history of the neuroscience of blah, 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 why? And um, it's really funny because if you look at the books that always win, like Pulitzer Prizes, Nobel Prize, they're all, they always have evolution and they always have history in them. <laughs> but as a general rule, readers hate it and you get pillared for it and you lose readers for it. It's a, it's a, I can't explain it. I don't know what it is. Um, but I, I have come to think of um, it is a filter for a, like a certain kind of smart um, that I like to be around in people. Interesting. Well, I appreciate that. And hey, we just uh, our, our friendship is blossoming in front of our eyes. I love it. But talk to me. Let's talk about the state of consciousness of flow, because that's the the pattern that you observed as you started to unravel this mystery and you continue to be obsessed with. So let's talk about that. I mean, is there, where would you like to start in terms of the state of consciousness of flow? <laughs> Definitions. Scientifically, flow is an optimal state of consciousness where we feel our best and we perform our best. So it's both categories. More specifically, it refers to any of those moments of rapt attention and total absorption. So focused on what you're doing that everything else just seems to disappear. Time passes strangely. It slows down. Occasionally, more often, it speeds up and five hours go by in like five minutes. Sense of self gets diminished. All aspects of performance go through the roof and the experience is... It's autotelic is the technical term, but it basically means it's euphoric. It's so joyous that once an experience, once an activity produces flow, we just want more and more and more of it, which is all a fancy way of saying flow is the most addictive state on earth. It's right. the pleasure we prefer the most. And it's also totally deeply 100% correlated with life satisfaction, well-being, meaning, purpose, all those really important metrics. Um, the more flow you have in your life, the higher you score on all those metrics. Okay. So that's a definition of flow. The other thing that is worth pointing out to people, because this is very confusing to most folks. So by the way, when psychologists define flow, they do it just how I did it. There are six core characteristics, ways the state make you feel. And I just listed them, complete concentration on the task, merge of action awareness, finish yourself, time dilation, 
complete control that comes from this peak performance and autotelicity. Those are, so how do we measure it? If those six characteristics show up, that's flow. How much of them show up? They can show up dialed down to like one on the scale of one to 10. That's micro flow. This is like you sit down to write a quickie email, you get sucked in and you write an essay and <laughs> an hour goes by. And when you pop back into consciousness, maybe your sense of self didn't disappear and nothing mystical happened. You didn't merge with the universe. But bodily awareness is gone and you're like, oh my God, I got to go to the bathroom and you run to the toilet, right? Like that happens to us all the time, right? Sure. Oh my God, I got to pee. That's bodily <laughs> awareness being diminished. That happens as part of flow. So that's how they measure it. That's microflow. The other end is macroflow. It's when all these things show up, dialed up to 11 times, slows down and right? Often, uh, often talked about it in mystical qualities or you know, using that language because um, it's a really deeply profound altered state of consciousness. So that's that's a quick flow overview for everybody. Okay, so that's on the psychological perspective. And you were talking about really the state of consciousness of flow. And so, you know, let's talk about that. I mean, when you if you want to get into peak performance, what you're talking about is a state of consciousness, right? So there's a there's a process or an approach that you've studied. I mean, could you talk a little bit about that? For sure. And um, there's no short answer here, right? Like the shortest way I could teach all any all, anybody all the things that you need to know for peak performance is in the new book, The Art of Impossible, right? It's yep. a peak performance primer. It's a blueprint. So there's no, but here's the here's what you need to know. Um, and flow, by the way, when we talk about peak human performance, flow is absolutely foundational. It's necessary. It's not sufficient. There's other things going on. And so there's, there's some other things in the equation. It's not just flow is the secret to everything that ails you. That's not going to work. <laughs> but what we do know is that uh, flow is a profound boost in everything you possibly imagine. And flow states have triggers. These are preconditions that lead to more flow. Easiest way to think about this is flow follows focus. It shows up when all of our attention is in the right here, right now, right? First characteristic of psychological characteristic flow. Um, so that is what all these triggers do. They drive attention into the now. Now there's 22 known triggers. There's 12 triggers for individual flow. This is me in a flow state or you in a flow state. There's also group flow. This could be two people, me and you talking, interpersonal flow or group flow, a band coming together and the music just soars or a fourth comeback in football or a great brainstorming session. That's all group flow. There are 10 triggers for group flow. There's probably way more, but that's what we've discovered so far. And um, if you want more flow in your life, these triggers are your toolkit. To put it really to bring kind of the story back around, what did the action adventure sport athletes do back in the 90s? Like what the hell happened? For a bunch of reasons uh, that have, we, we won't go into, they basically started building their lives and their culture around flows triggers. And as a result, they started maximizing their access to the state. And it, they made it reliable and repeatable. And one of the things that happens in flow is learning path to mastery massively accelerates. This is research done by the US Department of Defense. Soldiers in flow can learn 240 to 500% faster than normal. So by getting into flow on a regular basis, you're massively accelerating the path to mastery and it was happening all across, everywhere in action sports. And you had communities of innovation developing in Jackson Hole, in Squaw Valley where I was living, in British Columbia, right, in Whistler, et cetera, et cetera. These are essentially skunk works, right? Built around flow triggers and the result, maximize flow, blah, blah, blah. 
but it's here's the more important fact it's not just action adventure sport athletes anywhere you see a culture of innovation seattle during the grunge rock movement right 90s uh paris in the 1920s silicon valley in today or san francisco during the birth dot-com movement in the early thousands right anytime you see a culture of innovation you're seeing a culture that is being built around or prioritizing flows triggers and to put a real business cap on the whole thing the original the best innovation blueprint anybody had for the 20th century was skunk works right developed by kelly johnson and lockheed martin in the 1940s as a way to how do we build planes faster than Germans to win World War II. And ever since, everybody from Apple to Walmart to Whole Foods, you know, whenever anybody in business wants to innovate to these days, they build a skunk works. Kelly Johnson had 14 rules for skunk. You could, they're online. Uh, I think Wired did a great article about them not too long ago. If you look at them through the veil of peak performance, being like, read the art of impossible and then go back and look at those skunk triggers. Or you can read my book, Bold, where I actually break this down specifically. But Kelly had 14 rules for skunk. He was collaborating at the time with the US Army. Three of his rules were like for dealing with the pain in the ass. That was the US Army. The 11 other rules are about cultivating flow. They're flow triggers. So for example, immediate feedback is a flow trigger. Flow follows focus. So when feedback is immediate, right? We don't have to wonder, how am I doing? How do I perform better? We know, right, instantly. This is action sports, packed with immediate feedback, right? You either, you're skiing, you either set that edge, you know, at the top of the core, you're sliding on your ass to the bottom, right? Like it's neither or, feedback's immediate. Um, really high pro flow profession, surgeons, ton of flow, because feedback is immediate, right? You fuck up, the patient's dead. Like it's really, it's really clear. Um, so other high flow professions, coding, stock market, all this stuff, really feedback's built in, blah, blah, blah. Anyways, um, Skunk Works emphasized rapid experimentation. Lots of little tiny experiments. Don't do big, giant, multi, do as many tiny little experiments as you can, right? And this is uh, Jeff Bezos at Amazon, the success or failure of Amazon. Um, it depends on how many experiments I run per month, per week, per day right? Same reasons, right? Rapid experimentation gives us fast feedback. Fast feedback gives us flow. Flow amplifies creativity, learning, motivation, grit, productivity, you know, on and on and on. So, um, and innovation. So this is how that cycle works. And that's what you saw in the action sport athletes. So you want more flow. These triggers are your toolkit, right? You want to know how to use these triggers and how to Read the art impossible. If you're too <laughs> impatient for that. Cool. Got a gift for you guys. If you go to www.flowblocker.com. So besides the triggers, there's obviously shit that gets stands between you and more flow, right? Flow follows focus. So distraction, for example, is a major flow blocker. That's one example. Anyways, there's six major ones. Most of us are fall prey to one or two categories, but it's usually one big one. Right, this is a diagnostic. We built it. It's free. It'll not only help you diagnose what's standing in your way. It's got a full action plan, um, so you can check that out, um, and that's free for everybody. That's awesome, and we'll put links in the show notes to that as well as all of your books. Because no, I highly recommend you go deeper, right, on all this stuff. Because you know, there's so much out there that that Stephen's laid out. But you know, one thing that I love that you talk about is that we're all wired for peak performance, right? 
and that we can use and make our nervous system our ally rather than our enemy. And what you're talking about in terms of these flow triggers is about tapping into the nervous system more or less. Am I correct on that? Yeah. So I've said for a long time that peak performance, which like people hear peak performance and they think, you know, Ted Williams or LeBron James or like, you know, Mahatma Gandhi or whatever. And they don't like, they don't get that. Like I spent my life studying extraordinary people. None of them started out extraordinary. And I've known most mm-hmm. of these people for a very long time. Right. Like they were all like the action and adventure sport athletes. Everybody was broken and a mess. Right. Like nobody, you, you don't, you just start out like everybody else. And only thing that peak performance is, is getting our biology to work for us rather than against us. Or as you put it, and you're, um, I think you're paraphrasing William James, who said in 1901, the great thing then in any education is to make your nervous system your ally instead of your enemy. Same thing, same idea. This is a very foundational idea. By the way, Nietzsche talked about, said the exact same thing before James. Um, by about 10 years. So like, this is a, like, no, Nietzsche was the first high performance philosopher because he was the first guy to start doing it after the Darwin, after Darwin, right? So Darwin comes along and says, hey, body evolves, mind evolves. And suddenly everybody has been interested in, in peak performance and philosophy and psychology and whatever goes, oh crap, <laughs> biology matters, right? Like, oh, <laughs> right. okay, right? And so, uh, and the toolkit's the same. Right. The same tools, the same biology that those athletes use to achieve the never been done before impossible is what you and I use to make Monday better. Right. Right. There's no other tools. This is the toolkit. Right. I say one of the one of the really fun experiences that has been happening when like kind of early adopters have been reading the book. And a lot of my fans um, and my my core fans are, are peak performers. Right. Like those are the first, you know who they like, they knew some of this stuff and they wanted more. And what happens when people, and when I say peak performers, I mean, top 20% of whatever it is that you do in the world, right? You're at that level, maybe top 30%. What you end up doing is recognizing huge parts of your life in the book. And you're, and usually the experience of reading the book is, oh, I do this, I do this. Oh, I didn't know I was supposed to do this. I didn't know this was how this worked. And if I did this with this, I could maximize, right? So the big news is we all got the same biology. The big news, and I think in the art of impossible, what's what's different now, and this is thanks to advances in neuroscience, A, and it's also thanks to um, one of the weird things about being the, the flow guy is, um, as I've heard I've been called, um, <laughs> is that flow, good, I like that opti- name. flow optimizes all this other stuff, motivation, grit, productivity, and creativity and you have to you have to ask yourself as the flow guy like why the hell is going on so you end up having to study i had to learn all this the neurobiology of all this stuff and when you do that you start to realize that like oh wow this is all a sequence it's a system it's all designed to work in order and it's designed to work together so like there have been great books written in the past 10 to 15 years on grit on motivation on productivity on focus on flow i've written some of these books right like <laughs> right but they're all slices what we now have is a look at the full big picture and what you get is oh crap all this stuff is designed to work together and the point you started with them are probably the most boy boy you get it working together use the system how it's designed to work oh my god you go so much farther faster and the other caveat the big eye-opening thing you know I, I, what i like to say is Human beings, it turns out, are designed to go big. We are literally by design to go big. 
The psychologist Abraham Maslow didn't put it, uh, he said it better than I did. He said, whatever a, a human being can be, they must be. So we are designed to rise to our full capability. And it turns out not going big is bad for us. Wow. It turns out not getting our biology, not using our biology the way it's designed is, I mean, and when I say bad, I mean crippling bad. So let me, let me, in the early portion of the book, when I start talking about our biology, the, one of the first places you start is with intrinsic motivation. You talked about curiosity. That's an example of intrinsic motivation, passion, purpose, autonomy, right? The desire to steer, be in charge of your own life and what you're doing with your time and uh, mastery, the desire to get better and better at the things we do. These are the biggest five intrinsic motivators. And by the way, they're also all flow triggers because when you have curiosity, what do you do? You pay attention to the thing that's in front of you. It happens automatically. Passion. You pay even more attention. Purpose. Oh, wow. I do this thing. And not only is it good for me, it's good for the whole freaking species. Cool. I'm going to pay a lot of attention. Oh, I get to do this thing with freedom. It's my way. Cool. I'm in charge. I'm paying even more attention. Oh, and I'm really kick-ass good at the stuff I'm doing. And it's going to get me laid Friday night and I'm <laughs> going to cure AIDS. Cool. Right. Even more. You get my point. Yes. Right? These things really drive us. So eight major causes of depression in the world and anxiety. Now let's talk about for a split second. This is, this is a plague. I mean, we've just suffered COVID as a plague. Anxiety and depression are so much worse. One out of 10 adults will, will need treatment for anxiety and depression this year. It's the largest drain on public health dollars in the world. And somebody kills themselves once every 12 seconds. So we're failing miserably. We're doing so much better against COVID than we are against anxiety or depression, right? And my, interestingly, if you look at these eight causes of this plague, um, two of them get all everybody's attention trauma and genetics, right? Trauma, something terrible happened and I can't get past it. And genetics, my brain is screwed up. I can't produce enough serotonin, so I can't be happy. And yet, if you look at the data, the data is overwhelming on genetics, that genetics alone can never cause depression or anxiety. It's only ever 50% of the equation and how you're living is the other 50%. Trauma, the vast majority of the time, you don't get post-traumatic stress when you encounter trauma. You get post-traumatic growth, right? This is like the, this is uh, uh, Hemingway's, the world breaks everyone and afterwards many are stronger at the broken places. But Hemingway was right, it's many. Like, look at the data, it's overwhelming. It's like, this is how we grow up in the world, right? Bad shit happens, you solve it and you go on. And that's how, you know, it's as a general rule, this is not what crushes us. What crushes us? What are the other six causes of anxiety and depression? Number one, lack of meaningful work. What does that mean under the hood? Work that I'm not curious about, work that I'm not passionate about, work that isn't aligned my values and who I am, my purpose, work that I'm not afforded any autonomy. I have to do what the boss says. I can't explore it the way I would do it. And there's no opportunity for mastery. I'm not getting better and better at the things I'm doing. It's too all over the place. That's the number one killer, right? Wow. Lack of meaningful values is two. That is, I don't have purpose. I don't have flow. I, like, I mean, so not going, the system is designed to work a certain way. I mean, by the way, this should not surprise anybody, right? Like, right. you know, funny thing, Tyler, I was using my new vacuum cleaner as a hammer 
and it broke. Right? <laughs> I mean, like, what other place where you use the system for something it's totally not designed to do, and we're surprised that it breaks? But, you know, um, that was a shocking finding with this book, but I, that it is one of the, like, it does seem to be one of the big truths is that we're, we're optimized to rise to our full potential to go after high art challenges and not doing it is really rough on us. Hey guys, I just wanted to take a brief time out from this show, this incredibly mind expanding discussion to speak to the high achievers, the high performers. I wanted to speak to those who have a burning desire to go to the next level and beyond. First of all, I hear you and I see you. When I got started as a real estate entrepreneur, fresh out of my W-2 corporate job, I was excited and jubilant to create and design my future. At the same time, my business and life was filled with confusion, filled with fear, doubt, uncertainty, and to be honest with you, sometimes even sleepless nights and hopelessness, even while experiencing what many would have considered substantial success. Ultimately, I mustered up the courage to hire one of the world's top high-performance business coaches to work directly with me on creating strategies, systems, and profound shifts towards accelerating my multifaceted performance and to become an industry leader. After years of investing significant resources into myself and in my business through this process, I am now paying it forward as a high-performance coach to those who feel called to elevate to the extraordinary. Wherever you are right now, you know deep down that you have it within you to be great. If you're someone who's seriously looking to elevate your business, your real estate portfolio, your cash flow, your deal flow, your network, your net worth, your lifestyle, and ultimately your life right now and ongoing for the rest of your life, I have a message for you. Because if that's you, then I invite you to visit coachwithtyler.com. I have limited coaching spots available to guide people like you who want to substantially close the gap from where you are to where you want to be. These are first come, first serve, and demand high-touch, one-to-one focus from me directly to you. And this is not for everyone. This is only for those who are decisive, committed, and willing to do whatever it takes. It's only for those willing to play full out and invest time, energy, and resources into themselves to achieve greatness in real estate investing and beyond, which is what we're all about on this podcast. This is for those defiantly inspired for transforming as an empowered limitless and unstoppable human being in full control of their and their business's future. If that is you, I invite you to visit coachwithtyler.com. Again, that's coachwithtyler.com where you can apply for this life-changing opportunity. We will then schedule a discovery session where we will directly discuss what's working, not working, and how we can work together to accelerate your future. With that said, enjoy the rest of the show. Yeah. And man, I tell you what, the, um, we are designed to go big, uh, soundbite to me really, really stood out there. And even the quote by Nietzsche, if we can be, we must be. Um, and I think that that's really interesting and it's kind of, you know, to the core of what elevates all about, and it's about, you know, rising beyond your potential, right? Because we have beliefs about our potential and then perhaps what we can expand to beyond that. And one thing that I find interesting about your work as well is you talk about goal setting and how that can actually perhaps expand us beyond where we thought we could go. Could you talk about goal setting and what you've seen in terms of the power uh, of yeah, that? Yeah, but let me start with a huge, huge, huge warning. Before we talk about goal setting, I want to, the number one thing, because this is, I'm Gen X, Gen Xers don't tend to do this. Millennials and Gen Z love to lead with their purpose. 
Hi, my name's Tiffany, and I'm here to save the rainforest. That's my <laughs> mission, right? Like every meeting I'm in, and I'm sorry, Tiffany, I want to save the rainforest as well. But here's <laughs> the problem. When we talk about our goals out loud, the brain releases the, neuro, the reward neurochemical dopamine. Dopamine mm. is literally focus, energy, and it's the energy we use to go after our goals. And so by talking about our goals out loud, your brain starts to behave as if you've already accomplished your goal. And then when you actually go to accomplish your goal, it will not produce the same dopamine. So literally, it, you're robbing yourself of the motivation and fuel. The research early goal, or the reason all this has happened is because so much of the public conversation around all these topics is sort of dominated by these really not great sort of 60s, 70s psychology ideas that sort of became 80s and 90s self-help and are now sort of everywhere in the culture and they're disastrous. Goal setting, early goal setting theory said, hey, talk about your goals out loud. It'll hold you to the lash of public accountability, right? If I say, Tyler, I'm going to save the rainforest, the weight on me is greater than if I keep it to myself, right? That's what the thinking was. It, it seems logical. It turns out it doesn't work that way at all. And so talking about your goals ahead of time. So I'm going to give you a bunch of goal setting stuff that's super important to performance. Keep your goddamn goals to yourself. The way we <laughs> the, literally in uh, I, the, I, the document is actually at the Flow Research Collective. Um, I think the document is called <sighs> Rules, Ways to Get Fired or Stephen Possibly Being an Asshole, um, <laughs> which is the, the founding document for the Flow Research Collective. But one of the one of the core things is have a passion and purpose and keep it to your damn self. Mm. And one, I believe, and I think any true badass in the world, you'll never hear somebody who is an actual badass say, "Hi, my name is so and so, and my mission is such and such," because they're a badass because they're they're already on their mission. They're doing it, and you know they don't have to tell you because it's plainly visible. And so the thing is, when you come to me and tell me your mission, I know you're a liar. I know you're mm. not doing the thing you're claiming to be doing. One, two, you're actually hurting yourself as a peak performer. So if you're dealing with serious people and you want to lead with your mission or your goals, we think you're lying. Just so, just so you know, this is a disclaimer that you're actually dealing with a non-player, right? Mm. Like not to quote LL Cool J, but real bad boys move in silence. <laughs> or, you know, if we want to upgrade it, real G's move in silence. There we go. Right? Um, but it's a real thing. That's a real thing from a peak performance standpoint. And it's a real thing from a impression standpoint, which is, um, and people don't talk about that. So those are my goal setting caveats because people get this wrong all the time. And I put this in the book, but I keep, it keeps happening. And finally, like this one, I'm going to court this one. I'm going to actually speak out about mad <laughs> as hell. I'm not going to take it. All right. <laughs> what the biology tells us is that, um, human beings work, we're goal directed creatures, right? So understand that. We don't really live in reality. We live in a reality that is shaped predominantly by two things, our fears and our goals. And it turns out, by the way, it's this, like the biology is the same. The same neurochemicals that make anxiety make curiosity. Anxiety, excitement, and curiosity are all the same cocktail. It just depends on how we frame it. Um, my point here is, to get the machine to work properly, right? The system, 
the system demands three levels of goals. We need mission level goals for our life. Big things that we steer by. I want to write books that have a deep impact, right? If you're a wannabe author, that's a, there's a mission level goal. Um, then we need high heart goals. High heart goals are the mission level goals broken into like one to five year chunk action steps that all will lead to that mission level goal. Like if I want to write books that change the world. I want to get an undergraduate degree in creative writing. I want to get a job on a newspaper and learn how to be a journalist. I want to write my first book on facial hair. I want to write my second book on, you know, cooking with chopsticks. I, I don't know. Um, you get my point. One to five year chunk goals. And then you need clear goals. Now, clear goals themselves are a flow trigger because when our goals are clear, we know where to put of our attention and our attention stays focused on that. And we know what we're trying to do in a situation. So they work as a flow trigger, but clear goals are literally the daily to-do lists, right? The, and there is a very not complicated, but there are very specific caveats around clear goals. We don't have enough time left to talk about it. It's art impossible stuff, three levels of goal setting, but just to understand the, like you asked a question about what do we get? So high hard goals, properly said high hard goals are the clearest metric we have in terms of measurement because there's so much work that's been done on them. But in almost every domain you can possibly imagine because they've looked everywhere, setting properly set high hard goals give you an 11 to 25% boost in motivation. This is cuckoo. If an eight hour day is your baseline work, this is like getting two free hours of work done simply because you set the right kind of goals. Are you, I mean, like, so when we talk about getting your biology work for you rather than against you and going farther, faster, right? Flow itself, McKinsey's metric, and maybe it's wildly over the top, but it's in line with a bunch of other numbers, says we're 500% more productive in flow. So, you know, these are huge, you know, huge boosts on top of the 11 to 25%, like incredible boosts in really foundational stuff. And that's the other thing about like when you get your biology working for you rather than against you, here's the crazy thing. And this is true if you're going after capital I impossible, that which has never been done or what I call small I impossible, all that crap that you think is impossible for you, right? That essentially... The what's at the core of your podcast, right? Like the stuff that overcoming, doing the stuff that's small, I impossible, the, the stuff that you think is impossible for you, um, which is really the secret to going after capital I impossible anyways. Nobody ever goes after capital I impossible. You go small, I impossible into small, I impossible. And then, you know, one day capital I impossible is just what happens next. Uh, give you an example of that. First time I met Laird Hamilton, the big wave surfer, we were, he was like 31, I was 20. 27 or so. And uh, he said, you know, Stephen, people, this was in the 90s, he said, people see me on these 50-foot waves at Jaws and they say, Lair, dude, that's impossible. No, no way. I can never do that. And he's like, you know, I'm 31 years old. They're seeing me on these waves. What they don't see is me at three years old on a three-foot wave and four years old on a four-foot wave and five years old on a five-foot wave. And they didn't see me last week on a 49 and a half foot wave. So mm. they see the 50 foot wave and they go, oh my God, it's impossible. And I'm literally out there surfing it thick and layered. You're not really pushing very hard, right? Like this is, wow. sick, sick. you can't really control the weather, but this is just six inches bigger than what you did last week. And you know, man, right? Literally the view from the inside is very different from the view from the outside, but I've, that's how you get to capital I impossible. It's one small I impossible at a time kind of thing. And of course the biology is the same. So it's just, 
continual incremental improvement, but it's a continual stretching of what you believe was possible. As yeah, well the, as, I mean, the simplest, know, the, practice, the right? simplest way to describe peak performance is peak performance is about, and so how many items could go on your clear goals list for a day, right? Right. The answer is figure out how many things you can be excellent at in a day, and that's the number, mm. right? And everything you have to do that is going to take energy this could be talking to your spouse or your kids. This could be taking your dog for a walk. This could be going anything that's going to take energy and that you want to be good at, right, goes on that list. And, you, right, you figure that out. But the bigger point is all you can, with all those activities, what does it mean to be excellent at? It means to go into them and be able to use your skills to the utmost. That's how we find out what we're capable of, right? Human capability is an emergent property. We push in our skills to their utmost and our capability emerges. And it's like a state shift, right? Flow is this thing that emerges when we do this right and suddenly we're going so much farther, faster. So you don't know the benefit, you know what I mean? You can't measure it because it works like compound interest, but that's literally how we, you know, how we get to impossible. And it's also the reason that like, I always like to say that like, Humans are hardwired for extraordinary, and most of us don't know this because human potential is invisible, right? It literally is an emergent property that only emerges when we use our skills to the utmost. That's over and over and over again. That's how we actually find out what we're capable of. But the crazy thing is, because of the whole biology working for you rather than against you stuff, it's actually a hell of a lot easier to get to these high, hard goals than you ever imagined. And I would like to point out for biological reasons that are look up emotional set points. We won't go into this, but honest to God, if you've made it to adulthood, if you've survived being a teenager, you've already felt the worst that this life can pretty much offer. Now there are, there are caveats, the death of a child and chronic unemployment can change this, but as a general rule, because of these emotional set points, you've already experienced the worst you can feel on this planet. It's already happened. So I'm not saying, you're built to do that every day in a row for five years. Like you may not have dealt with that, but my point to everybody is not only do we not know what we're capable of, right? And you're capable of so much more than you know, but you're already tough enough to do all this work. There's no secret pain that's out there hiding around some corner that you haven't yet. You've already felt the bad. I mean, I'm not saying it like it's, it, you know, it sucks. There's no way around the suck. But like, it's not like there's a surprise pain somewhere. And I think most of us feel that way. Like, I can't do this. I'm so afraid because, well, what's the worst that's going to happen? The worst that you've already been there. Like, seriously, if you made it with your hormones, you couldn't control your emotions. This is being a teenager, right? Like, you've already, you, unless you had one of those miracle childhoods where nothing bad happened to you, if that's not you, besides those people, freaks. Um, <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> Steven, this has been amazing. Uh, and, and, and I just want to, you know, re-highlight what you just said, we are so much more capable than what we know. And I think that's an extremely powerful, you know, soundbite in itself and such a reminder that, Hey, look, we can continue to push the bar. We can raise the bar in our own life and raise it incrementally, right. To see what happens next. But Steven, I want to transition briefly into our rapid fire section called the rare air questionnaire, which is what you're all about, right? It's about the art of impossible, right? It's about continuing to stretch those limits and continuing to, you know, dig deeper within yourself about, hey, what's what's the peak performance look like within you? So as a, an amazing prolific author yourself, I would imagine you're also a big reader. 
and also judging by all the books behind you. If you had to point to two or three of the most impactful books that you've read over the past few years, is there any that come to mind? Charles Yu, How to Live Safely in a Science Fictional Universe, is maybe the most creative novel I've read in my entire life. It's brilliant. It's funny. It's the coolest meditation on time, memory, and loss, and regret, and reasons why not to have regrets, but it's so freaking fun. Also, on the tip of like just amazing feats of fun and imagination, uh, another sort of weird-ass sci-fi book, John Dies in the End. These are just the two uh, two of the best books I read this year. Both are just amazing novels. And a lot of people, professionals, don't read novels. They want to, I want to use all my time reading uh, nonfiction to learn and don't sleep on novels. Novel, book, nonfiction gives you facts. Novels gives you an alternate perspective. And they force you, good novels force you into that perspective. You have to adopt a perspective you would never have for a little while. And it's amazingly good for innovation and creativity and problem solving and whatever really great peak performance tool. So don't sleep on novels. Um, and, uh, nonfiction wise, the coolest thing I've read all year is the Cambridge handbook of the imagination, which is, uh, Cambridge handbooks are, uh, these are papers. It's a collection of papers on the imagination and it's predominantly psychologists and neuroscientists. Um, and, but it's with the Cambridge handbook, you get global perspectives and, uh, historical perspectives as well. So I, the Cambridge handbook, I have, you know, books on what is imagination in Iranian philosophy or Hindu Vedic philosophy or Buddhist philosophy right next to kind of Western neurobiology of imagination and, you know, blah, blah, blah. But, uh, um, that it's been a, that's been a great, that's been my favorite nonfiction book that I've read in a while. I love that. Thank you for sharing that. And of course, we'll put links in the show notes to those books as well as all of your books, Stephen. And uh, what's the biggest way that you elevate your life on a daily basis? Try to hurl myself down mountains at high speeds. <laughs> Whenever I get the chance, you're laughing, but it's my primary flow activity. And um, that's super important. Um, how do I try to elevate myself on a daily basis? Um, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I, it's funny because the answer to that question is, uh, art impossible. I mean, you want to know what I yeah. do on a daily basis. That's like, that's, you yeah. know, that's what the biology says. So that's what I do. <laughs> Absolutely. I love that. What's the biggest way that you elevate others around you? Um, I, uh, my interest is trying to make the world a better place for animals. So when I think about others, right. Um, I know a lot of my flow research, all that stuff. Like I, you know, my wife and I are on a, a dog sanctuary we do hospice care and special needs care um for you know small dogs with big problems and you know that kind of that at a daily basis i you know the others i try to elevate tend to be furry um, <laughs> but you know i to me um it's empathy for all right empathy for all people but also empathy for plants animals and ecosystems otherwise we're all going to die so you know 100 yeah steven this has been amazing really really appreciate you taking time today is there any parting thoughts or words of wisdom that you share with elevate nation just go get them, Tiger. Seriously. <laughs> like, I mean, I, I wrote The Art of Impossible. One reason is because I, I got tired of seeing extraordinary people who were about to do extraordinary things that the world could really use tripping over themselves over and over and over again. I don't know how to solve water shortages in Africa. That's not like I, I literally I don't know how to do it. But somebody does. 
I know how to solve the peak performance. I know how to teach out it so you don't keep you out of your own way. So that's, you know what I mean? Like, go get them. Seriously, the world needs you. Go get them. Man, amazing. Steven, you are amazing. And I look forward to part two. But thank you so much for being here, my friend. My pleasure, Tyler. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Oh, my goodness. What just happened? Elevate Nation. My goodness. Steven Kotler dropping bombs today. And uh, I don't know if you enjoyed that, you know, half as much as I did. But if you did, then you are you're vibing right now. And uh, man, there's some flow that we can all tap into. It's amazing that we can just, you know, we literally can make our nervous system our ally instead of our enemy. And so understanding that and really diving deep into how can we use that lever towards creating high performance in everything that we do, right? And being a high performer in the things that we're in our zone of genius for, right? The gifts that we've been given. So I just, I'm so grateful for the opportunity to have interviewed Stephen Kotler, one of the, you know, world's foremost experts on peak performance. And you can see why. I mean, I hope you enjoyed that conversation, but you can learn more about Stephen at stephencotler.com or the art of the art of the art of impossible.com flowresearchcollective.com. And of course, we'll put links in the show notes to all of that in addition to where you can find Stephen on social media and LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, you name it. Uh, but you definitely want to go dive into his books um, because his books are phenomenal. They're, look, at the end of the day, the, the uh, you know, the sales speak for themselves. And uh, we're talking about a guy who's, you know, I think now a four times New York Times bestselling author, an amazing, amazing, amazing person. And I tell you what, this is this is the key at the end of the day, this is the key to stepping up and being a high performance and so many a high performer in so many different regards, whether it's in your business, your real estate portfolio, your relationships, you know, your sports, whatever it is. I mean, it's it's we all have we all are destined for greatness. And oh my goodness, we are designed to go big. So let's go big. And I want to encourage you to re-listen to this show. I want to encourage you to take notes, distill it down to, if you can, this is a big challenge today, your top three key distinctions. What are your top three takeaways? And share that with a friend. It's like, wow, I didn't realize that you know X, Y, and Z was the case. Can you believe this? And I just heard it here on Elevate. So I want to encourage you to listen to this. So share this with a friend, share this with a colleague, share this with a family member, Share this with your spouse, because my goodness, we can apply this to everything. We can apply it to everything in our life, everything in our business, everything in our money, in our happiness, our fulfillment. So share this with someone else. I want to encourage you to re-listen to this show because you're going to find things that you didn't hear the first time around. But most importantly, and ultimately, I want you to I want to encourage you to take massive action. Take massive action, whether it's setting your goals, setting your intentions, and, you know, setting up yourself for a daily, you know, practice towards stepping into excellence, right? Stepping into excellence and taking action on, is it three things? Is it five things? What is it, right? But expanding your future through using your nervous system as your ally and rather, rather than your enemy, because you are a high, high and peak performer. It's there, whether or not it's been out recently or not. But I want to encourage you to tap into that. So uh, until next time, guys, really, really appreciate you listening. And we will see you next time. Thank you for listening to Elevate. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to rate, review, subscribe, and pay it forward by sharing with a friend. Most importantly, take this opportunity to elevate your results by taking immediate action on what you learned. For more, visit elevatepod.com.